Welcome to the Association 4.0 podcast, your association's no-fluff playbook to navigating and thriving in Industry 4.0 or the digital marketplace. Each week, we bring expert insights to help you and your association stay ahead of the curve. Hello, my name is Sherry Budziak, and I'm the host of the Association 4.0 podcast. I am also co-founder of .org Community and founder and CEO of .org Source, a consultancy to associations. Today, my guest is Garth Jordan. Garth is the CEO of the American Animal Hospital Association. The Animal Hospital Association was founded by seven leaders of the veterinary profession in 1933. From its inception, AHA has focused on promoting high-quality standards for the rapidly evolving sector of small animal private practice through accreditation and other initiatives. These standards were developed to raise the bar of veterinary excellence and have undergone numerous updates throughout the years, always reflecting industry standards. So with that, Garth, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Sherry. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the invitation here. So as my listeners may know, I am passionate about helping leaders develop skills for navigating fast-paced digital markets. This conversation is one of several where I'm inviting guests to discuss their strategies and advice for future success in this new environment. Garth is one of the truly unique thinkers in our industry, and his perspective always causes me to consider issues in a new light. So I'm excited to have Garth here for this conversation. So Garth, I guess I'll start with asking, what aspect? of the association industry, do you think that the pandemic permanently changed and what areas are reverting back to the kind of the status quo? Oh, that's a good question. What I'd like to believe has changed, so I can't say that I know it's changed, but what I'd like to believe has changed is the concept of strategic planning. So I'm a big believer in and follower of Roger Martin and his concept that strategic planning is almost an oxymoron. Those are not his words, they're mine. I think is dead on. When you think about strategy, strategy is a place of discomfort. Planning is a place of comfort because we do the things we know will work. As Roger Martin would say, we create a new branding plan. We hire more people for our content areas or education. We do a new conference, whatever the case may be. Whereas strategy is a place of less specificity, more need for flexibility, and certainly a lot more need for trial and error. So when I think of strategy these days, I don't think of strategic planning. I think of a strategy, for example, for AHA, our strategy is to simplify the journey toward excellence for veterinary practices so that excellence is a journey. And our job is to simplify that journey on behalf of our members. And that can manifest as a lot of different types of projects, a lot of different types of investments, a lot of different type of staff work, et cetera. And whether it's digital or something else, a lot of it is digital, by the way. But when I think of that, then our job is to make that statement come true, that strategy come true. And so you can't really plan it specifically. You have to say, we're going to do these three, four, five things we're going to tweak them along the way. We're going to tweak that same strategy along the way. It's a living, breathing, almost entity that we're always working on, always talking about. So the idea to me of a three to five year plan is out the door. Personally, I don't believe in it anymore. I've started speaking with leaders who are thinking of the strategy less as a planning effort and more as a living, breathing 
way of being, way of having your organization think and act. And I like that. And I hope it sticks post pandemic because we learned through the pandemic that, you know, obviously anything can come up, rear up behind us and bite us, right? So planning is not necessarily, planning to that level of detail, I think that we used to, is not necessarily the right way to be going in the future, especially with technology, AI, et cetera, changing as rapidly as it does. Yeah. And the work that we do when we've, quote unquote, worked with associations on digital transformation, people would come to me with a strategic plan that they took two years to create, and it's a three to five year plan. And I'm like, (laughs) wow. Well, first of all, the world's going to change by the time that you guys even get the technology in place to implement the plan. So (laughs) I've always had that kind of mindset of what are we doing here? The other part, you know, just being an entrepreneur, I see there's opportunities that come up. And if it's not in the plan, does that mean we can't, you know, jump on those opportunities because... We didn't plan this out for five years. So anyway, so I think that your thought process on that is right on. I definitely hope that sticks. (laughs) I hope so too. You know, the other thing for us that to be able to essentially fund that type of thinking to the credit of our board and our leadership, we basically said, while we still have an annual budget, we have what I would call is a highly flexible and separate strategic budget. It is a budget, but it's also, it's not necessarily annual. Essentially, when I started at AHA, we were blessed with a year's worth of reserve, 12 month of reserve. So we measure our reserves in months based on our operating expense budget. And essentially what we agreed to with our board is that we have a floor and that floor is six months. And then we have a warning floor, which is nine months. But the board says, whatever you need from reserves to fund strategic investment, that's your leadership, that's staff leadership's decision. We don't have a limit that says the CEO has to approve something over $50,000. We don't have a rule that says it must be in the operational or the strategic budget for the year in order to be used. It's to your point, when something comes up and it's a good idea, it's an interesting idea, we don't have to wait to think about how to invest in it. What we do then is we just look forward every month or every quarter, we're looking at a three-year projection of what our reserves are going to be. And we just say, if that projection looks like it's going to start to hit that nine-month level or you know go down below that, dip below that toward the six-month level, we're just making adjustments along the way. We have that flexibility to invest in our strategy without thinking about, oh, we have to have all of our project ducks in a row the day we approve the budget, or we have to wait 12 months, or there's just not that much flexibility in the budget. We don't have infinite flexibility, but we've got a lot more than your average association, I feel. And that really helps us live that strategy view versus the planning view. Yeah, that's terrific. I'm interested, Garth, in learning more about something that I noted that you had on your LinkedIn profile. You talk about developing new business models for AHA will eventually outgrow the traditional association business model. What do you mean by that? About half of our revenue is accreditation. So we accredit the physical practice. So if you go into a veterinary practice, you bring your dog, your cat in, that physical location, we do an accreditation. Just like in human medicine, people probably know the Joint Commission. The Joint Commission accredits hospitals, et cetera. That's pretty much mandatory in human medicine if you want to be able to bill Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera. But in veterinary medicine, it's purely voluntary. We accredit about 15%. Actually, when I started at AHA, we were in the 12 to 15% range of veterinary practices in North America. And how that works at a very high level is a practice voluntarily raises their hand to say they want to become accredited. And we would essentially assign them what we call a practice consultant. 
who really just gives them about 900, 950 standards and says to them, you know, hey, in six months, I'll come and evaluate you, right? You're almost on your own when it comes to the evaluation, which doesn't really pair all that nicely with this concept of simplifying the journey toward excellence, right? So what we said was, well, we have this beautiful intellectual property. The intellectual property is not just the content of the standards themselves, but it's also the process of accreditation. So right now, we're the only ones with the infrastructure to send someone to a practice and, and evaluate them and do a checklist of the standards, et cetera. But what we said was that process and that infrastructure that we have, that's a strategic advantage. That's intellectual property that can help us move from this idea of the standards as a checklist and an evaluation into more of a tool that supports your journey toward excellence. So what we've done in the last two years is we've thought very differently about the process of accreditation not just the application of 950 standards as a checklist. And what we've said is in that process, we want to do several things. One, we're going to bring practices together online in like micro communities. When we have 10 practices who raise their hand and say, we want to be accredited, we're going to put them in a community and we're going to support the community and they're going to help each other go through the process of accreditation with our facilitation. So as we started to do that and just think like that and experiment with that, we did three cohorts. We call them cohort accreditation. We did three cohorts and we learned that the cohorts want to not just apply the standards, but learn about them and understand them more deeply. We started to build essentially a curriculum around the standards themselves. So now when we do a cohort, we actually do a 14-week course with the cohort facilitated through it. And we're on our third generation. And now we're in an LMS. We're on the third generation of the curriculum for the process of accreditation. We've seen our pass rate of accreditation go from 80% to 98% in cohorts versus one-on-one-to-one -on -one -to -one accreditation. So it's really interesting when we start to focus on this idea of our content and our core work and executing it differently out in the world. It's turned our standards from a checklist into a curriculum. It's turned the process from one-on-one -on -one to one-to-many. And now, for example, we're working with a corporate-owned group of practices that has 350 practices, and they're putting them all through accreditation together at the same time. That's great. So, right. So we have multiple large groups of practices from dozens to hundreds doing accreditation. I wouldn't say in bulk because it's still very unique to the individual practice, but we're doing it in these cohorts with this curriculum. The other thing, now this is even cooler. The other thing it's doing is, is because we have in the curriculum, everyone that goes through the curriculum can earn their own professional, not just practice, but their own professional credential to say, now I deeply understand these standards and their applications. So if they leave a practice and go to a non-accredited practice, they are the practice's champion for accreditation. So we're building these champions out in the world for this process as well. And so that's changed for us. Now, the next gen of that is probably two years out, and it is to apply AI throughout the thread of that, as well as the actual evaluation itself. So we're really looking at now, not just changing the product, but changing the execution of it with technology over the next couple, two, three years. That's great. That's great. That's really interesting. So Garth, we interviewed you for our second book, Association 4.0, <clears throat> An Entrepreneurial Approach to Risk, Courage, and Transformation. And at that time, design thinking was a process that you were talking mm -hmm. about and you presented for us at NOR community event. Is design thinking still a part of your leadership strategies or have your ideas on that topic changed or evolved? Oh, it absolutely is. So I think 
fairly uniquely, we've applied design thinking or I've applied design thinking across three organizations now, AHA being the third, to develop our strategy. In addition to developing a handful of products and services that are cascade from the strategy. So I'm a big believer that that human-centered design or member-first, you know, customer-first, empathetic view of design first and then build and then iterate is the right way to go. And it's worked exceptionally well for us at AHA. So that example I gave you with cohort accreditation actually did come from not only our strategy, simplify the journey toward excellence for veterinary practices. That's not a mission statement. That's our strategy, right? Mm -hmm. It is our just cause, our purpose, but it is also our strategy. Those eight words, everything cascades out of that. When we said, let's practice with cohort accreditation, cohort accreditation came out of talking with multiple practices that have gone through the process of accreditation. And they told us, it'd really be great if I could learn more from my peers who have been accredited or who are going through accreditation so that we can share policies and procedures, we can share practices, et cetera. So we said, well, why not build cohorts around that? So then we experimented with it. It just came out of that process of design thinking. Same with a variety of other products and tools. So yes, getting back to, I'm still a big believer it's become now more natural for us to think and act that way as opposed to it being an exceptionally formal process. Talk to me a little bit, Garth, about how you help teams innovate and how do you create that balance between innovation and stability? It's a good question. I'm not sure it's a conscious effort. It's a good question. Now you're making me think, do I consciously (laughs) do that? I think the challenge with innovation that a lot of people find is they're trying to do something new on top of their day-to-day work. And a lot of people think of innovation as a massive change. And personally, I don't. I think of innovation as iterative. And if we can make the concept of iteration and continuous improvement part of what we do, that's part of our DNA, part of our daily jobs. We have three very simple core values. That is simplify the work that we do, have integrity with each other and cooperation or collaboration. We have very simple core values as an organization. The key though, in that, the idea of simplifying, because the way we describe simplify to ourselves is a process of continuous improvement to remove the extraneous, to remove the unnecessary. And that kind of forces you to think about innovation as a part of your daily work. That may be one way we think about it where it doesn't feel onerous or it doesn't feel like something extra. Although, you know, we have taken on a handful of new projects like cohort accreditation that are above and beyond. But when people feel like they understand how it connects directly to our strategy, simplify the journey, then they see it, they grab onto it. And I don't want to say there's no complaining about it because that makes it sound negative, but people are very engaged with it. You almost don't see a purposeful quote unquote innovation group or innovation fund, right? We just want to build it into our DNA. It probably took us a couple of years to get there, to move our strategy into being kind of just part of who we are. But I think we're there. We've got some really good measures that indicate that we're there in terms of internal staff and employee net promoter score and our staff understanding of our strategy. That's great. So to kind of take it to the next, I guess, step is So this idea of keeping things simple, does that play, do you think, a stronger role for the future of associations? I would hope so. Personally, as an individual, but also as a leader of, you know, a mid-sized $12 million association, I have found 
that the idea of simplifying, once people start to really grasp it, it's easy to say it's hard to do. Simple isn't easy. <laughs> Simple is yeah. really, really hard, right? <laughs> Whether it's through design or process redesign or product development or whatever the case may be, what I have found is is an exceptionally powerful concept that brings people together and number one, and number two, when we build our core products or our services and redesign, like I said, something like accreditation around that concept of simplifying, I am seeing our members gravitate toward those things that we simplified. I'll give you another example. We create guidelines, different than standards. We'll create guidelines that are 20, 30, up to 70 pages long. So take something very complex like anesthesia management for animals. You know, you've got a 30, 40 page guideline. Applying that guideline in practice is not easy. So what we've started to build is not only toolkits, which is a pretty standard thing around how to help apply the guideline in practice, but we've also built competency-based learning around the guidelines. So now what we have is this guideline that's got almost like a planetary system of products and tools around it. So it's less about reading the guideline and more about understanding and applying the guideline. And again, that's our core business. We just used to publish guidelines. right? And when we think about, well, our job is to simplify the journey toward excellence. Giving you a guideline doesn't simplify your journey. It probably complicates your journey because now we're, we're saying, here's a thousand things you could do better in your practice, but we have to actually have to give you the tools that allow you to go from A to B. And I know that sounds overly maybe simplistic or straightforward, but we didn't have this concentration on our core business of standards and guidelines. Now it's probably 80% of our work is simplifying standards and guidelines in their use and application. And we're seeing the revenue come after that. By the way, I mentioned we were at 12 to 15% market share. We're probably at 17% now in a voluntary accreditation world, which is not bad growth in two years when we were at less than 15% for the last 20 years. Yeah, sure. No, that's great. I've had so many conversations around guidelines for medical societies, and I would hear, we need an app, we need this. And I'm like, why? And they're like, because we're going into whatever. They're really not reading the details of a 40-page guideline, which it's a whole different conversation. But right, we're concerned. Right. So I love this. I'm like, oh, yeah, I need to bring that to some of these other organizations that I work with. That's great ideas. So Garth, how do you see the dynamics between the boards and CEOs changing in the future? Or do you? You talked a little mm -hmm. bit about your board giving you flexibility on spending and innovation. And I think that's really unique. I work with organizations where nothing gets done. Everything has to go through the board. So anyway, I just kind of want to get your thoughts on those dynamics, either what do you see yeah. or what do you think is needed or... I can tell you what I think is needed. I'm not sure how often I see it. I have a great relationship with my board of directors. It's smaller than your average bear. We're a board of eight. I think that size matters. Number one, I think the relationship that I have with the board is barely pure when it comes to they are fiduciaries which is the primary role. And they also help set and you know guide us along toward our strategy. Like a lot of people say they want, but our board stays out of operations. So to me, that's the basics. That's the 101. And if that's not happening, then that's probably the first place any leader needs to start. And I'm not here to counsel a bunch of other CEOs out in the world that are smarter than me. But to me, that's the 101. What I see beyond that, especially with our board and what's just what I'm experiencing, as I mentioned, for example, example, with that financial flexibility that we've been blessed with is a board hires a leader for a reason. They hire a CEO for a reason. To me, it all starts with trust. Yeah. Our board trusts me. We built the strategy, simplify the journey toward excellence. And now it's about making it come alive. 
And we let them know how we're doing it, where we're succeeding and where we're failing. We're open and honest about where we invested and it didn't work. We're open and honest about where we're investing, like in cohort accreditation and it's working. That's going to be the bulk of our growth, as you pointed out, going forward in terms of the growth in accreditation. The bulk in non-dues revenue is going to be around guidelines and centered around all of the products and the simplification products we're building around our guidelines. We're not chasing money. We are making our core business of standards guidelines even more important. And we're highlighting that and we're growing internationally. So what the board has done is they've put their trust in me and I've put my trust in them to be the fiduciaries and the strategic guides. That to me is absolutely the key. And then they give me the freedom and they give our management team the freedom to do the work and to report back to them. And they don't have a knee-jerk reaction when something goes wrong. They trust that we're going to fix it. They trust that we'll tell them the timeline in which we're going to fix it. It may not be a month. It may be 12 months, but they give us that flexibility and they don't overreact to the loudest member in the room who may not like something that we've done or that we've changed. They deeply believe in the strategy and they trust us to get there. That to me is the key. That gives us a ton of flexibility and almost zero micromanagement which is incredibly important. You hire the leaders, like was it Steve Jobs who said, we hire good people not to tell them what to do, but to have them do the work and tell us what to do. Yeah, That to me should be the relationship between the board and the CEO. And if that's yeah. not it, I think the association puts itself in jeopardy. I agree hundred percent. That's great. Thanks for that, Garth. Now I want to hear your thoughts on staffing structures and reporting relationships. Do you see any change in the future with that? I mean, we went from obviously this remote work environment and organizations are struggling with cultural issues and a lot of things. So anyway, I just want to get your thoughts on staffing structures and reporting sure. relationships. Oh, you've hit a topic that I love because I love to simplify it. So from my perspective, you hear the word silo a lot. Yeah. Um, associations and, and other organizations kind of notoriously siloed for a lot of historical good reasons. So for example, you know, your publishing group is siloed from the rest of the organization to have this kind of almost academic independence, right? I don't think the historic structures of associations serve us well. What I do is I try to eliminate structure, flatten it, and create an organization that's more like an organism. That is an organism where people are saying, yes, we are pointing at this purpose, this just cause, simplify the journey. And the only way we can bring that to life in our instance is to do it together. So we had an accreditation group, for example, that was about 50% of our staff and still is, but they were very independent. We had a press group or a publishing group that was very independent. We had a corporate sales group that just sold sponsorships based on what it could develop because other people were making the products and services. We had a marketing group that decided when, where, and how to market the stuff that everybody else was making. And while we still have those groups, if you want to call it that, we have elected as an organization, we went through a process of saying, what kind of culture do we have? What kind of culture do we want to be? And in a nutshell, we said, we're a hierarchical culture now, siloed hierarchical culture now. We want to be a clan culture, which is a highly collaborative, highly integrated culture. So we all agreed to it. And then we said, well, what are the design steps that get us from A to B? What are the gaps that we have? So we talked about that as an organization, not in a dark room with the board or the leadership team. We talked about as an organization... And we talked about the seven to eight characteristics that we wanted to bring to life. So our bosses are no longer bosses. They're mentors and guides. We don't really have bosses. We do formally for employment law, but more formally, our bosses are guides. That was one of the key things. 
They also care about the relation. They they have they care about the relationships that they have with their coworkers outside of their departments. So we build very purposeful ways to help people build those relationships because guess what? It starts with trust, right? You can't have high collaboration without high trust. What we've done essentially is flatten our organization to enable people to work together, which means also no micromanagement, et cetera, and building the integrity and expecting everybody to say, when you say what you're going to do, you're going to do what you say. And that's the expectation. I'm not monitoring anyone. The boss isn't monitoring anyone. We are holding each other accountable. So you have these cultural norms. Things have to become cultural norms not just simplicity, but integrity and the trust that we that we build for collaboration. Those become cultural norms. You don't need nearly the structure. You don't need a thousand goals per apartment. You need like three to five goals for the organization. And all of a sudden you watch this organism build itself around those goals. It's fascinating. It doesn't take just one grand architect to do all of that. It just takes talking about it as a village and deciding what you're going to do together. I love that, Garth. Wrote that down. Organization is more like an organism. That's great. I've been talking to CEOs about describing their culture, and they have a really hard time doing that. They say, my culture is great. I'm like, well, according to what? And like, what is that? And they can't describe it. So I love this. I was just, as you're talking to, I was thinking, I only thought like a consultancy can do that. Everybody has their groups, have their projects, everyone's collaborating. And then if we need somebody else's brain on something, we bring them in. So yeah. it's, it's awesome that you guys are able to create that that environment. Yeah. So we've, that's fantastic. We've, we've learned all about each other's strengths, right? I mean, we've got a lot more to learn. So to your point, you know, I really need XYZ expertise on this. I can pull someone in, request some help from another department. I don't need to go up through a chain of hierarchy to find time and all that kind of stuff. But what I can tell you is over the course of two years, well, I've been with AHA for three and a half years. When I started, I didn't know this when I started. The board, I think, smartly kept this away from me. We had an employee net promoter score of negative 75 when I started. Yeah. (laughs) So I really, truly hope no one ever has to start from that point. That was when we started talking about culture and this hierarchical culture that we had. And we designed this clan culture together and took steps toward it. Can't give you all the details of what all that looks like in this short podcast, but I can tell you what the result is. Our last employee net promoter score was over 30. So we've had over a hundred point swing and the trajectory is still upward. I think in the next one, our goal is, you know, in the 40 to 50 range, we can't really manipulate it so much. We just kind of hope we get there, but it's really just about doing the right thing, right? It's really about, you know, figuring out the way that you can help people, guide people, mentor people in their career, mentor and guide them in a way where they are working together and building pathways where they can build much better and stronger trust among each other. It's pretty basic. And I hate to make it sound easy. It's not easy. It's not complicated. It's not complex. It's really just a few core ingredients. And you find, as I mentioned that word, you find that organism starts to build itself with only a little bit of help from the beginning. That's great, Garth. So as we kind of wrap up today, I have a question for you. How do you feel the role of associations is changing in society? Do you think it's expanding, contracting? Do you think it's going to be totally reshaped? Do you think organizations will need to revisit their missions? Do you see them taking on new kinds of responsibilities? We were having these talks amongst ourselves lately, so I just want to see if you had any thoughts before we wrap up today. Well, I have an idea. 
It's an idea and an opinion. That's what you're going to get out of this one. I think associations can probably survive. I'm not going to say they're going to do it in an exceptionally healthy or impactful way. For example, if they continue to just represent the profession, if they're a professional association or the business line, the trade association. So for example, AHA was really centered on just getting organizations accredited. And that was essentially the focus of our mission. Outside of that, we, I hate to say it, but we kind of chased a lot of money trying to get sponsors and yeah. exhibitors and all that good stuff. With a dynamic that changed for us when we found through design thinking, this idea of simplifying the journey toward excellence for veterinary practices is, as Simon Sinek would say, it's more of a just cause. And that just cause, when you read that, when you think about that statement, it's very inclusive. It's not a members only statement. There's some key characteristics around it. Inclusive is one. Another is if you argue against that statement, it's really hard to argue against that. Everybody would love a simpler journey toward excellence in their life, but especially for people who are taking care of your pets. The other key about it is it's kind of infinite, right? There's not a beginning and an end, and there's not a way to win. It's just you're going to keep working on it. Another way to think about it that collectively is that we've turned our thinking from less of being a professional association, or in our case, we were kind of a hybrid professional trade association into a cause. And this cause really requires us to focus on the profession and the trade of veterinary medicine. But the cause brings people in and people want to be part of it and help and they want to support. This isn't just words. We are living this cause now. Our goal is to simplify the journey. You know, we will never reach the goal. We will get better. When we think about professional and trade associations and their traditional missions, it's about the association being the leading voice in this or, you know, representing fashion and growing the profession, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those do not connect people. Those do not engage people. Those in the future will hold less and less and less meaning. If you can find a just cause that brings your profession in and makes your profession or your trade part of something that more and more people can say, yes, I want to be part of that. Or yes, I agree with that. Yes, we need to make that happen. That to me, where associations can thrive in the future. That's fantastic, Garth. That's some great thoughts. And I love that opinion. Yeah, that's going to leave me with a lot to think about today. So thanks so much for this great discussion. I could sit and talk with you for hours, but I know you're <laughs> a busy man with just a few things to do. So I'll wrap it up and appreciate our listeners tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. And Garth, any final thoughts for today? No, just live the good life, Sherry. Awesome. Great. All right. Well, thank you. And we'll hopefully talk again soon. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Sherry. We hope you enjoyed this episode and discovered tips and information that will add value to your leadership style and your association. Dot.org Source specializes in positioning teams for success with solutions for technology, strategy, and marketing. Please contact us at info at orgsource.com or visit www.orgsource.com to find out how to keep your organization on track to Association 4.0.